All right, good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them to Galatians 3. That's the book of Galatians in the New Testament, chapter 3. We have been studying through the book together in our series entitled Free at Last. That's what we do here at TCC. We come, we pick a book of the Bible, we work through it. Last week we were in Galatians. Next week we hope to also be in the book of Galatians. And we'll be in chapter 3 today at the very middle portion, I guess, of the chapter. Chapter 3. As you're turning, I want you to just consider for a moment how much you and us as a culture how much time we put into making sure we are straight in our relationship. Ever ask somebody, hey, we good? We straight? We okay? I've got a friend of mine that I uh, often have to apologize to, and so I'm texting him, and he's always texting me back, no worries, no worries. That's our whole text thread. No worries, no worries, no worries. He wants to make sure that we're good. We did this when we were kids, right? When a kid, we'd write a note, might say, are you mad at me? Check, yes or no, do that. We do this in social media. We follow somebody, but you shouldn't unfollow somebody. That sends a message, right? You might friend somebody, but we can't even do the opposite of friend somebody. That would be enemy somebody, right? But we can't even do that. We unfriend somebody. We're so sensitive, we could never enemy somebody. We are so concerned about the status of our relationship. We want to be right with one another. Husbands do this in their marriages. Husbands might say, oh, what was that look? Are we okay? Are you mad at me? I saw the way you sighed when I was telling that story. Are we okay? We're consumed with this. Likewise, one question that all of humanity has been consumed with throughout history has been, am I right with God? Most people throughout history have been God-believing people. Even if it was a false God, they believed there was a God, and you can actually track back this very same question. God, are we good? Are we straight? This is what Paul is going to deal with. This is going to be the central question of the entire book of Galatians that comes up here in chapter 3. How do I get straight with God? How do I get straight with God? You may still think of this sometimes in your life. Maybe you feel guilty after having done something. You might have the impulse, oh, how do I, how do I make that right with God? How do I get straight with God? Or young people between ages 15 and 25 tend to really wrestle with, well, if there is a God, how, how would I get right with Him? How would I get straight with that God? Maybe in times of death, you're wondering, was my relative straight with God? And then you think about your own mortality. Oh, am I really good with God here? Deep down, are we we good? Maybe someone of faith that you admire, a famous preacher or somebody, screws up. You begin thinking, how could they do that? Are they even saved? Are they they right with God? It comes up all the time. Maybe you're just taking stock of your current situation. You've had a heavy week or a heavy month, or a heavy 2018, and you're thinking, did I do something to deserve this? Am I right with God? Am I straight? Is there something going on? Are we straight? The question comes up all the time. That's going to be the main focus of our text today here as we start off in Galatians 3. I'm going to ask two questions in our outline. First one, how does Abraham get straight? Paul is going to know you're struggling with these questions and he's going to throw your mind back to the Old Testament, weirdly it might seem, to think about Abraham. And then he's going to say, now how do you get straight with God? Okay, so we're going to go through those two questions. How does Abraham get straight with God? And then how do you get straight with God? So let's dive in. We'll start in verse 6 of chapter 3 of Galatians. Where Paul says, as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, of course, this verse, verse 6, isn't in a vacuum. It's right in the middle of a discussion carried out through the whole book. So remember the context of the book. 
Paul is writing to a church that he planted. And this church is now doing two things. They're questioning his authority as a leader, as an apostle. So he has to spend the first two chapters of the letter defending himself. But they're also struggling with a notion of a different gospel. When Paul came, he preached the truth. You could only have access to God through the righteousness of Jesus, triggered by faith alone in Christ. Someone else has come in and said, well, you need Jesus, but you also need something else, which is the circumcision. Within the context that we now arrive in chapter 3. So this entire section, all of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4, if you want to read ahead in your Bibles, it's all going to be dealing with this idea you're made right with God through faith alone in Jesus. Life comes at you in stories, doesn't it? Paul knows that. That's why previously in chapter 3, he asked you to consider your own story, your own conversion experience. Now he's going to put before us the story of Abraham. So verse 6 reminds us, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So why does Paul want you to focus on Abraham? Well, he's a key figure in the Old Testament. He's also associated with this idea of circumcision required in the Old Testament law. And most likely, the people who came into the Galatian church and were leading everybody astray, they came in by saying, hey, you want to be in God's family? Well, here's a good example of how to do that. Look at Abraham. Abraham loved God. He was accepted. And he was also circumcised. So if you want to be in God's family, you need to love God and be circumcised too. So Paul's opponents, the Judaizers, the people peddling this false gospel, or adding to it and making it false, they started with Abraham most likely. So Paul is bringing it up to set the record straight. He's going to tell the gospel from the Old Testament. Now notice his words there in verse 6. They are in quotes. He is quoting from somewhere when he says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Where is he quoting from? He's quoting from Genesis 15, part of Abraham's story. And we'll look at that in a minute. But before we do, I want us to know what Paul means when he says the word righteous, righteousness. What is he talking about? Well, righteousness properly means being morally right. Okay, we say Someone is righteous, that means they have the quality of moral rightness. And when it comes to people relating to God, the idea is we know God is righteous, and so in order to relate to Him in a square way, we need to be morally right too. Otherwise, we'll feel shame. When you think about what does it mean for God to be right? Well, for God, it's simple. God means to be righteous. We talk about God as a righteous person being man and Jesus, to be righteous, God must be committed to uphold the glory of His own name. That simple. For God to be morally right, to be righteous, He must be committed to uphold His magnificence over and against all idols, certainly over and against all idolatry that humans tend to have. Humans aren't like that. We people don't seek naturally to uphold God's glory. Instead, we uphold our own, right? And that's our big problem. Paul sees that. And Paul says, I've got the fix. I've got the medicine. I've got the glue. You need Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is the only man-God who ever came. And every moment throughout his life, he always held up the reputation of God. He always saw the glory of God and tried to make everyone live in light of that glory, Jesus was completely righteous. So Paul will go on to say, what you need is Jesus' righteousness counting over and against and as applied to your unrighteousness. And then you can be straight with God. There's nothing you can do. You can't summon up your own righteousness. It's not a matter of willpower. Not a matter of moral backbone. Speaking of backbone, I heard a joke. Let you take a breath here. 
heavy talking about righteous. All right, I heard this contortionist say, I've decided to have my spine removed. It's only holding me back. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> Not bad. More seriously, you know, you'll get it. More seriously. Speaking of holding me back, I had thought this week about a time when I was in undergraduate studies, University of Tennessee, and I was a senior. I was looking forward to potentially going to a certain grad school, so I was sitting down with my academic advisor, and though she was very kind, she pointed out to me what I was blind to previously, and it was the fact that though my GPA was decent and I had some honors, it wasn't near high enough of the standards of the place I wanted to get into, the graduate school, right? So she was gently telling me I had less than par grades. And as she was talking, you know, my hope for grad school began to go down the sink, and I began to daydream, as I often do. And I had this daydream about my brother. My brother turned 50 this week. He's on my mind. And I was daydreaming back then about my older brother because he took his studies very seriously. He earned a 4.0 in undergraduate studies, went on to get his Ph.D., and I was thinking, wouldn't it be neat, as she's talking to me, since we have the last name, couldn't my brother's transcript and the grades therein somehow be transposed on top of my grades, thereby rendering my worthless grades into worthy grades? And I had this whole scenario where my advisor would look there and say, oh, you've got a 4.0, Williams. Yes, I've got it. And that's the idea Paul's going to present here. When it comes to righteousness with God, we have to have Christ's righteousness, which is perfect, 4.0 righteousness. At every moment, Christ set out to consistently, unwaveringly be committed to God's glory. We need that placed upon us and our unworthiness if we are going to be straight with God. That's the gospel. But this is exactly where the Galatian church got off track. The Galatian church knew they were unrighteous. They knew they knew Jesus. But then they also said, I need something else. I need circumcision. I need a work of the law. And Paul goes on to say, you know what? Even the people in the Old Testament had to understand that the Old Testament law was not a perfect path. So he begs us to jump into the story this morning of Abraham. And again, you can turn to Genesis 15 and read through part of the story. Or you can just listen to me tell it. Either one, I'll give you the background. Up until Genesis 15, we are introduced to this guy named Abraham. He's from a place called Ur. That's in Iraq. So he's a rocky guy before there was a rock. Uh, and when we meet him, he's 75-ish. He's in his 70s. And he has no child. Childless. Married to a woman in her 60s. She's 65-ish. She's barren. And yet we see in the story God pursuing him, God calling him, God chasing after Abraham and grabbing him. And he gives him a promise. He says, I'm going to give you a land where all of your descendants can flourish and I will bless you and I'll bless your descendants. And if you're Abraham, and that's landing like a brick, right? You're 75, you don't have kids. And here's God telling you, I'm going to bless you. Up until this point, Abraham had gone to Egypt. We see a travel log of sorts, a travel journal goes down to Egypt, gets in a little trouble there, keeps on moving towards this promised land. Has some incidents with his nephew that are recorded in Scripture. He has to rescue his nephew from this uh, marauder party, this, this band of no-goods that capture him. Abraham rescues him. He comes up. He has a meeting with this priest, and that brings us to Genesis 15. And we get an insight into a conversation that Paul says, hey, you want to know the gospel? Look in Genesis 15. 
But Abraham is the example of it. So to that end, I want to read just a portion of Genesis 15, beginning in verse 1. Picture Abraham here, 75 childless, married to a 65-year-old woman who's barren. That's on his mind as he's talking to God. So after these things, after the sojourn, after going into Egypt, after leading his homeland, after leaving, the word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision. God says, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. What's he going to fear? Well, he's probably fearing, you know, I'm promised this, but I don't have any kids. Listen to how he responds. Verse 2. Abram says, oh Lord God, what are you going to give me? Because I'm childless here. I continue childless. And the heir of my house is this guy Eleazar of Damascus. We don't know who that is, but it's probably either a servant or a distant relative. It's certainly not his son. So he's looking around saying, I don't even have one heir. God says, Abram goes on to say, you've given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. And God says, this man shall not be your heir, Eleazar. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then this is great. God takes him outside. Abraham staring up in the stars. It's nighttime. Staring up to the stars. And God says, look. Look towards heaven. And number the stars. And I can see Abraham. He's a fast counter. He counts by 10. 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. And God interrupts him. Says, no, no, stop. Even if you're able to number them so shall your offspring be. See all those stars? I'm going to give you that many descendants. And this is the very point that Paul is pointing you to today. Because at this moment, what happens in Abraham's life? God has said, here I am. Here's what I'm going to do. How is Abraham to respond? Read it. Verse 6. Scripture says, he believed the Lord. What Abraham did, he believed the Lord. And what was God's reaction? He counted it to him as righteousness. He, God, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. Now note that word righteousness. What we see here with Abraham is that he believed. He had faith. He took hope. And God counted it, his faith, as righteousness. Meaning Abraham was accepted in that moment by God. He was straight. He was right with God. Now this is in his story long before he was circumcised. Long before he considered any works that would one day be a part of the Old Testament law. Paul says long before that stuff, Abraham believed and God counted it to him as righteousness. Now, let's make sure we understand what it means when God says, I'm counting your belief as righteousness. I don't want us to hear that the wrong way. Here's an analogy that was given to me. Hopefully it's helpful to you. My kids right now are on break from school. They are tracked out for what seems to be an enormously long three weeks. My kids are out, a lot of break. And one thing they like to do is to play video games. When they're tracked out, they like to play the video games. One thing I like to do when they're tracked out is to give them chores. You can see there's a little bit of a clash there, right? So imagine a conversation. I said to my son, Sam, you can play video games if beforehand you clean the kitchen. All right? I need a clean kitchen. Before you can play video games. Got it? Yeah, I got it. Sure? Yep. Understand me? Yep. Then we both take off. I go to work. He goes out the door to play with his friends. Now let's say I come home at lunchtime. And I walk into the kitchen. The floor's dirty. The counter's not wiped off. The dishes are not done. I look around and I get busy. I do the dishes. I sweep. Now, you must know, 
This would likely never happen in real life. Not because of roles, but because of my lack of character and thoughtfulness. But this is my creative fantasy story, so I'm the hero. So I go in, I wash the dishes, I sweep the floor, and later, my blessed son, Samuel, he comes home, and I'm there, and he takes stock of the situation. And he realizes, oh, I didn't clean this, and now it's clean. I got busy playing with my friend, I was riding my bike, and he comes to me, and he says, oh, marvelous father, <laughs> again, fantasy. I have failed thee, Father. I was wrong. I have sinned against you. I made a commitment and I didn't fulfill it. Can you ever forgive me? And what if in that moment I said to him, you know what, Sam? I am going to count your apology. I am going to reckon your apology as a clean kitchen. I'm going to count your apology as a clean kitchen. Now, if I respond that way, what do I mean when I say, I'm counting your apology as a clean kitchen? I don't mean the apology is the clean kitchen. That's not what I mean. I don't even mean that he cleaned the kitchen. That was me. It was an act of pure grace. I just did it. It wasn't him. What do I mean? Well, in my reckoning, the way I'm viewing things, in my grace... My apology connects him, his apology connects him with the promise of video games linked with Queen Kitchen. It's a connector. So when God says to Abraham, I credit your belief as righteousness, he doesn't mean your belief is your righteousness. Not what he's saying. He means your belief, and only that, birthed and empowered by the Holy Spirit, connects you to God's righteousness in Christ. That's Paul's main point here. Only faith can connect people to God's righteousness in Christ. That's why he's pointing us back to Abraham. We've got to get that at only faith. Whether you're living in Abraham's day, the first century in Galatia, or today's church, only Belief is going to connect you to Christ's righteousness. That's why if you turn back to Galatians now, back to chapter 3, away from Genesis, back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul can at this point say, Know then, after he's talked about Abraham, the gospel of the Old Testament, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Remember the context. The new teachers in the church have been saying, you want to be a son of Abraham? Faith plus circumcision, they go together. Paul is saying, no, no. Know then, by looking at Abraham, it's those people with faith who are the sons of Abraham. In fact, notice Paul's emphasis of the next three verses on faith. I'll read it fast. Verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and in the Scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, who is the man of faith. When you see Abraham, he's not the man of circumcision. He is the man of faith. He isn't the promised land dude. He is the man of of faith. He didn't just father Abraham. He is the man of faith, says Paul. Faith, 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 faith. That's the point that Paul is making. Only faith connects you to Christ's righteousness, which in turn makes you acceptable to God. It gets you straight with God. It's at this very point in the book of Galatians that Martin Luther just fell to pieces. Martin Luther was married to a great woman named Catherine. In his affectionate letters, he calls her Katie. As he studies through the whole book as a great scholar, when he comes to Galatians, he calls Galatians his little Katie. Why? Because his heart was torn up with his wife, and his heart was equally torn up, and more so, 
by the grace of God through faith alone as offered in Galatians. Read verse 7 again. Ask the question, just, just how right does one come because of faith? Just how right does that get you? Know then that it is those of faith who are what? Sons of Abraham. We're talking about sonship. We're talking about coming into the family of God. That's how right faith in Christ gets you. The Galatians needed to hear that they were being brought into Abraham's people, which is God's people. Not the Jews, but they were being brought into this broader family. All of whom could look to God and say, you're our father, we're your sons, we rest in faith. Not because of circumcision, not because of a biological connection, but because of a belief connection. Verse 8 explains it some more. And Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. This quote, In you all the nations shall be blessed, is repeated over and over again for us in Genesis Mentioned in Genesis 12, Genesis 18, Genesis 22, Genesis 26, Genesis 28. Now we know what Abraham's connection to all peoples is. They believe just like Abraham believed. And from his seed comes the great righteousness that we can all take part in. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. And by the way, you can trust... That what Paul's saying here lines up squarely exactly with what Jesus says in different words. As one man says, when we hear about Jesus, Jesus tells us what time it is. But Paul opens up the watch and shows us the inner workings of the watch. But it's the same thing. I'm going to give you an example. Look at John 8. If you want your Bible flipper, turn to John 8. If you're not, just listen. Because John 8 shows the story of Jesus in a conversation with some Jews talking about the same thing. Remember in Galatians, it was Jewish Christians who were trying to get people to believe a false gospel that said you need Jesus plus something else. In John 8, Jesus also talking to some Jews comes across the same topic. Listen to what Jesus says in John 8, 31. I'll begin there. I'll skip around some in this section. I'm not going to read it all, but I want you to hear some of it. John 31. If you abide in my word, this is Jesus now, not Paul. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. He's getting at the question of who really are the disciples? Who are really the saved people? Who are the justified? And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they, that's the Jews trying to figure all this out. They answered him saying, we're the offspring of Abraham. And we've never been enslaved to anyone. Forgot Egypt, I guess. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Forgot the Roman Empire that's ruling over him. We haven't been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you can say you'll become free? Now remember earlier I alluded to, I touched on the notion of freedom from having to make yourself righteous before God. Right? So Jesus answers, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. What's he mean by practicing sin? It can be anything in which you are committed to the glory of something else over the glory of God. Right? Righteousness is a commitment to God's glory. Sin is a commitment to putting anything else over the glory of God. Jesus says you'll be enslaved by that. I'm not talking about physical slavery. I'm talking about the spiritual slavery. 35. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Man, that's a good word. That's good hope. If the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. He goes on. He says, I know that you're offspring of Abraham. I know biologically you're related to Abraham. But get this. Yet you seek to kill me. Why? Because my word finds no place in you. That's Jesus' way of saying, you don't have faith. You don't believe me. Alright? I speak of what I've seen with my Father. I've been with God. I speak of what I've seen with my Father. And you do whatever you have heard from your Father. And so his listeners, the Jews, say, well, you're talking about my Father. They answer him in a couple of ways. 
Verse 39, they say, wait, Abraham is our father. Verse 41, they say, we, us and Abraham, we just have one father. It's God. So what are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus says this, verse 42. He said, if God were your father, you would love me. You would have faith. You would believe me. For I came from God and I am here. I came out of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? I'm going to tell you a problem, Jesus says. It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. Think about Abraham now. He bore to hear the word of God. God said, you're going to have kids. Believe me. Abraham says, I believe. Jesus comes with a whole message of his messianic triumph. And says, believe me. And they say, no, nah, I'm not, not going for it. I'm not believing your word. Verse 44. You know what? You know who your father is? You are, the, you are of your father, the devil. Now Jesus is making it clear there's no middle ground, right? You're either following him in faith or you're in the line of the devil. Keeps going. You're going to do your father's desires. That's your will. Not to believe me. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer, Satan, from the beginning. And he doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. Paul might say his own unrighteousness. For he is a liar and the father of lies. He cuts against God's glory at every turn. But because I tell the truth, you do not what? Well, Jesus' final words here. You do not believe me. Right? Jesus was all about belief, about faith. Jesus says, you're more like the devil than Abraham. Abraham had faith. You guys don't. Jesus is on to the devil's oldest trick. See, what happened in the Galatian church wasn't somebody bringing something entirely new into the church. What happened in the Galatians church was they were going just a little bit off of the scripture. They said Jesus plus something else. Now think about Satan in the garden. What does he say? He didn't make up some gobbledygook to trip Eve. That's not what he did. He came up and he said, hey, did God really say that? God didn't mean that when he said that about that tree. Here's what God really meant. Here's what he was doing. Satan doesn't trust, he twists. Jesus is on to that. Paul is on to that. Paul says, I'll have none of it. Then Paul wraps this section up with a summary statement back in Galatians chapter 3, verse 9. Paul's going to sum it all up and he's going to say, so then, after all I've said about you guys and Abraham, so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All Galatians who trusted God like Abraham trusted God are going to be called into the blessing of Abraham. They're going to be straight with God by virtue of what Christ did and nothing else. So how did Abraham get right with God? His faith connected him to Christ's righteousness applied to him, made him acceptable to God. Now skip now. Let's bounce from Abraham over to you. Okay? Let's don't just leave this in the book. I want you now to think about yourself. How do you get straight with God? Here's an illustration. A guy named Peter Adam, he's a minister. Talking about the fact when we when we think about most things, we're all deep down natural legalist. Just how we think about the world. He was telling a story about driving, uh, about getting in the mail. Uh, he got in the mail a uh, a picture. I don't know if you've ever had this when you have a traffic violation when you run through a red light. A week later, you might go through and say, "Is that yellow or red?" But a week later, you get in the mail an actual citation that has your picture on it. Because there was a camera at the red light and it's always a picture at an awkward angle of your car going by. And you might see your hands on the wheel, but mostly it's from above, so you don't see your face. But you can always see the license plate on the back and that's you and you're like, ah, ah they got me. 
this preacher was telling this story about leaving the hospital late at night. It's in the a.m., 2 a.m. He's driving down the road. He comes to a red light. He can see clearly for yards that it would hurt no one to run this red light. And so this guy does it. And as he runs it, he looks up and he noticed that there's a camera there that took his picture. And he's like, ah. And so he keeps driving and he comes to the next traffic light and it's green. So what does he do? Stops at the green light. And in his heart, he's hoping they get a picture of that so that that will pay back and it will even out his other act. Of course, the law doesn't work that way. But deep within us, we tend to think we need to always be paying back. We need to always be earning something. But that's not how things work between you and God. One author said this, you know, before the term Christian was applied to those who believed Jesus was the Son of God, early believers called themselves the way. Christians used to go by, hey, we're the way. Are you a way? Yeah, I'm a way. We're the way. There's a clear reason for this. Christianity is about the way which the Creator, revealed now through His plan to be a loving Heavenly Father, has graciously opened for His estranged, mutinous creatures to be reconciled to Him, to be accepted, to be straight, with God. There is a way. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. By no other name can anyone get to the Father. I am the way. Why did he say that? Because we need his perfection in his life and in his death and in his resurrection to be applied to us. If we want intimate life with God, we have to have access to God. And only Jesus is the way to intimacy with the Father. We have to believe that He is who He says He is. And we have to treasure Him above all things. And if you're here today as a guest or an unbeliever, we want to invite you into the family. God invites you in. Not by works, but by trusting in Jesus' sacrifice on behalf of all of his people. Now, some of you might be here and you're saying, hey, look, I get this. I've been a Christian for a while. I know how conversion works. It's through faith alone. I get it. What does this text have for me? Well, I think this text has a few things for believers as well. You can think of two of them. Here's one. We were talking this week in my community group, and if you ever attend my community group, you always know that anything you say is fair game to make it into the sermon, right? And there will be no footnote. You'll get no credit. If it's good, I will take the credit. But seriously, we're talking and we're discussing this passage, and we're saying, how can this help us? Well, we discovered a couple different types of people. Here's one. This might be you. Think about it. This is your time. Think about it. You might tend to fall prey to what the Galatians church was struggling with when you're relating to someone who doesn't measure up to your standards. Okay? You might feel this false gospel creep in if you're relating to somebody and you don't perceive that they measure up to your standards. What do you mean? Well, for example, let's say you have a flourishing career. Right? You have healthy relationships in your life. And you're usually around church, man. You're involved in this downtown community. You're doing ministry with children. You do pretty good. But then there's this person you know over here. Let's call him Buster. You know Buster. Buster ain't like you. He's a church member, yes. But man, in three years you've known Buster, he's had four different jobs. I know Buster and his wife don't get along that well. I think their relationship might be a little unhealthy. And he's only at church once a month at best, and I never see him down here caring for people in this community. I hear he does stuff in his neighborhood, but he's never down here caring for people. Is he right with God? That's what you're tempted to believe. It's very subtle. It comes in the back door, not the front. But there is a temptation for us to measure people up to our standards and not God's standards. 
I was driving here this morning about 7.15 a.m., driving down Timber from Garner, and the fog was as thick as I've ever seen it on that road. And I was driving, and it was so thick that, you know, 15 yards ahead is as far as I could see. So any movement on my peripheral vision on the edge of this fog made me a little nervous. I was like, oh, what's that? Oh, what's that? Can't see. What's that? What's that? I was questioning everything outside of myself because of the fog. And I think we do this sometimes. We hold people to our standards. We forget that it's Christ's work who makes them acceptable to God, not their work. The same thing that makes us acceptable to God is Christ's work on our behalf. So there's a level playing field here, isn't there? Christ's work for them, Christ's work for us. No reason to look down on them, and yet we tend to put a burden on them to earn Christ's love. You ought to be at church morning. You really good with God? You've been accepted? Have you been justified? Now, what makes this even tougher is because later on in the book, Paul will go on to say that Christians should expect a certain level of good behavior, right? In chapter 5, verse 13. Paul says, now, do not use your freedom. What's he mean by that? Freedom from the burden of having to earn your work, your good standing before God. That's freedom. You don't have to do that anymore. Just believe, says Paul. But then Paul warns us. He said, don't use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. What's he mean by that? Well, an opportunity to slack off and give in to your own natural desires. But instead... Through love you should serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So hopefully you can see the tension. Paul doesn't want you to base your justification on your works. And yet he does want you to love one another. The question is the matter of flow. Right? Justification on Christ's work alone should flow down into good works. Sometimes we reverse it and we think, if you're not doing good works, especially the ones that I'm doing, I question the flow of your salvation. Are you really justified? He goes on and says in uh, Galatians 5.15. Now you guys be careful. Because if you bite and devour one another, he seems to say that his teaching on free grace and being justified by faith alone could Lend to some arguments here. He says, don't, as you bite each other, be careful you don't eat each other up. So how do we hold each other accountable but not devour each other is the question. Paul's going to go on to say more and more about this, but in summary, we can say his answer is trust the Holy Spirit. In chapter 5, he's going to say, Holy Spirit is working. He's working in your brother. He's working in your sister. It's the same Spirit that worked in you. Trust his work in others, okay? Trust his work in others, says Paul. They may not be where you're at. They may not love all the things you love. Trust the Holy Spirit's work in other people. Be careful you're not holding people to your standards instead of God's standards. That's a good word. Maybe you're one who does that. Paul would say, trust the Holy Spirit is working here. Secondly, this could be you. I think I fall into both of these traps. Don't fall into the trap that even though I'm saved by faith alone, I still need to be impressing God. He needs to be impressed by me, my spiritual resume. What happens is you're constantly evaluating your own failures, right? What do I mean by that? Think about a stressed out mother of three. Man, she's juggling the duties of raising the kids, she manages the home, she's even got a career, all of that, she's looking around and she's tired. And she begins to see what used to be her benchmarks of righteousness begin to flutter away like a butterfly. She used to have morning devotions every day that were an hour long. Now, man, during this season, since the second son, those have fluttered Away. She used to have huge impact in her neighborhood, but now fluttered away. 
Family prayer time every night has always been a goal and that's not happening now. During this season, it's fluttered away. You once pursued your husband in love, but now you're just so exhausted. Even that is fluttering away. And how do you evaluate that? Well, this is the bondage. It's part of the bondage that Paul is speaking of. We are all somewhat enslaved to the idea that we need to be impressing God. I'm not saying these things aren't good. They are good. They're good goals. It's good to have goals. But when you look at seasons of failure and not hitting your goals, don't think about yourself as unimpressive to God. You're drinking a sour ale. It's called moralism. It's been around for ages. It tastes awful. This week I sat down, I was looking at my own phone, and I was scrolling through Twitter, looking at my feed. And when you're a pastor, you follow other pastors. It's a nerdy thing we do. So I was reading what the pastor was saying, and one pastor had a call out on his Twitter feed, and he said, uh, does anybody know of a pastor who could come and teach my church about God and family? And I was interested to who got recommended as good resources for God and family. I started reading it, and here's what it went. Well, you should call Fred, because Fred has done this with this level of education, and look how great his kids are. And I read it, and I said, huh, well, hope my family gets there. We're not there yet. Next guy. You, could, you should call Steve, because look at all he's done to revolutionize family ministry as a pastor. Everyone knows he's the best father around. And I'm like, oh man, I don't do that stuff. Start to feel a little bit smaller. On and on I read about 15 entries. By the time I put my phone down, my soul had shrunk. I was enslaved to this idea. I'm looking around and measuring myself, and I'm falling short. Right? is where I'm so thankful for Paul's foundational teaching. The only thing impressive about me to God is what Christ has done. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say in Galatians 5.25, what's nice about Paul is he assumes you're going to be tempted to compare yourself. Okay? Paul knows that. It's not just you. It's every person. And he answers it in Galatians 5.25. And he says, if we live by the Spirit... Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And then he goes on to negatively tell you what that's not like. Here's what not being in step with the Spirit is. Let us not become conceited. That's the first person I mentioned. Conceit is to hold people to standards that aren't God, but they're yours. right? Let's don't provoke one another. Eh, I'm doing this. You're not. Or envy one another. That's my problem with the phone on Twitter. At the end of the day, if it crushes me to hear how someone else has a success, I'm battling envy. That is not in the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit says, praise God, I'm glad the Spirit is doing that in the other person, and I'm happy and excited to see what the Spirit's going to do with me in the future, but I know we're on the same playing field because Christ's work in me is Christ's work in them. It's righteousness is the same. See how that rescued me? had that thought this week and it rescued me and it can rescue you if you're tempted with comparing yourself to others. Cling on to the fact that Christ's work in you is the Christ's work in them. It's a level playing field. So to be clear here, our theological problem is one of demanding righteousness from ourselves or others to impress God. Paul will not have it. We solve this by understanding today's main truth. You get straight with God through faith in God, taking Christ's righteousness as your own. Our practical problem is this. We compare ourselves to others. We have to deal with our own failures and their own failures. The answer here is walking in the Spirit. Trust that He's working in them. Trust that He's working in us. Us, that Christ's merit is enough for both of us. Today we're going to go to the table in just a moment as we pray. Why not think of the work of Jesus? When you take the Lord's Supper, when you take the bread of Christ, 
take the cup of Christ and you put them into yourself, why not remember that you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ? When God looks at you, that's what He sees and He loves it. He loves you. He loves His children. Warts and all. Failures and all. He loves you. That should give you hope as we move forward together this week. Let me pray for us. Oh God, I pray first a prayer of thankfulness. Thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. You've applied his righteousness to us, triggered by our trusting, our believing, our faith, and no other thing, and I praise you for it. Praise God for what you have done by your spirit here to turn our hearts to you. And I also pray for help. God, we are legalists. We are moralists. We tend to want to earn things. We tend to build up standards that other people have to follow in order for us to confirm them. We tend to beat ourselves up when we miss a goal. All of this is losing, losing sight the great work done by Jesus through his life, his death, his resurrection. So consume us this morning and this week for what Christ has done on our behalf as his people. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I said, we're going to move into time of the Lord's Supper. If you're a member here, you're invited to come take the table. Whenever you're ready, come back to your seat and meditate on it. If you're a guest here and you're a follower of Jesus, by all means, whenever you're ready, go take the table, bring it back to your seat. If you're here just questioning, you're a non-believer, we're so happy that you came too. Know that this meal is one for believers, but God has something for you here. Sit in your chair and just talk to God. You might be surprised at what He does and who He is. Just how glorious He will show off Himself. And with that, let's move now to a time Lord's Supper together.